Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host today. I'll be speaking with David Weinstein today about his new book, The Eddie Cantor Story, A Jewish Life in Performance and Politics, that's out just this year with Brandeis University Press. Hi, David. Welcome. Thank you, Christine. I'm so glad you're joining us today. And I wanted to just start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in history. Uh, Well, I never had the opportunity to see Eddie Cantor perform live. Eddie Cantor died in 1964, and I was born a few years after that. But I've always been interested, not only in history, but what I would call sort of cool, non-mainstream pop culture stuff in history. Music, books, movies. Uh, My searches over time have taken me everywhere from punk rock to French New Wave movies to early television and people like Ernie Kovacs and Jackie Gleason. Uh, I earned my PhD in American Studies from the University of Maryland in 1997, and I specialized in film and media history. As a grad student in recent PhD, I taught media history and communications at the University of Maryland and at George Mason University. And while I was in grad school, I also made documentaries, including one documentary on the DC punk music scene. And I worked as a paid researcher for historical documentaries that were being produced by people elsewhere in the country. I would do research at the National Archives. So the combination of a scholarly background in history and documentary film experience led me to my job at the National Endowment for the Humanities, where I've worked since the year 2000. Uh, I'm a grant maker for public programs, so I make grants for documentary films, museum exhibits, radio programs, podcasts, and digital projects. Uh, And since I started working at the NEH, I've continued to do my own personal research and writing, mostly early mornings and on weekends. And I continue to find inspiration, not only in history, but especially in the history of pop culture and the history of entertainment. Um, My first book was called The Forgotten Network, and it looked at this history of the Dumont Television Network, which was instrumental in introducing television to the country. So I wrote about a range of Dumont programs, including Captain Video, Jackie Gleason, Ernie Kovacs. And my most recent book, The Eddie Cantor Story, continues my interest in pop culture history, especially uh, figures that might be a little bit obscure or don't receive the attention that they deserve. Eddie Cantor was hugely influential and popular for nearly 40 years, but he's not very well known today. And the book, The Eddie Cantor Story, tells Cantor's story, but also the story of popular entertainment from the 19-teens through the 19 So how did you come across Eddie Cantor? How did you come to see him as a, a figure that you wanted to learn more about and study? Uh, as I was researching the book on Dumont and early television, I watched a ton of television programs, not just on the Dumont network, but on all of what were then the four major networks. One of the major networks at the time was NBC, and NBC had a very popular uh, comedy variety show called the Colgate Comedy Hour that I watched more as part of this research for Dumont than um, it wasn't central to the book. 
But as I watched the Colgate Comedy Hour, I saw Eddie Cantor. He was one of the hosts of this program. It had a rotating series of hosts, including Martin and Lewis and a number of, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and a number of big name uh, entertainers. And I had associated Eddie Cantor a lot more with vaudeville and a much older style of entertainment. So as I watched those videotapes of Eddie Cantor on the Colgate Comedy Hour, I was really surprised and even charmed by him. He was funny. He sang. He danced. He told jokes. He, he was incredibly just smooth and comfortable in front of the camera and on stage. And he clearly connected with his audience. And that surprised me a little bit. There were other old vaudevillians who came back on early television, but a lot of times they would do the same routines that they had done 20 or 30 years earlier. They were literally recycling vaudeville. And Cantor had some of that, but he did it in a sort of winking, nostalgic, knowing way. And he also did a lot of more contemporary stuff. So just because of my interest, I think, in comedy and early variety, I, I filed that away as we do when we're doing research and thought, okay, that's interesting. Want to know more about Eddie Cantor? Right after the Dumont book, which was published in 2004, my next project was an article. And it was an article for an anthology on the NBC radio and television network. And my particular chapter was on NBC during World War II. And I chose to focus on NBC's response, really going back to the 1930s and into the 1940s, NBC's response to what became known as the Holocaust and to anti-Semitism. And I found again that Cantor came up in a very different context, that of all of the major radio stars and really of all of the major uh, radio figures from the 1930s, Cantor was most outspoken both on and off the air in speaking about anti-Semitism, opposing Nazism during a time when it was very difficult to do that, really in a number of areas, but especially for celebrities and especially in the radio industry, where sponsors wanted uh, radio stars to steer away from that, networks did, and it was difficult to include political commentary or to do that kind of work off the air. So I found the Cantor came up really in two different contexts in ways that I found interesting and even admirable, both his anti-Nazi work and uh, his performances on the Colgate Comedy Hour. So I decided that I wanted to know more about him, and... I started researching him. I found that there was not a scholarly biography of him, although there are other books about him that sort of guided me. But then I started to do the primary research, and feeding my interest in pop culture, it became an opportunity to learn a lot more about vaudeville, to look at the original you know, newspaper articles, reviews, and to follow his career, but really to expand my knowledge from radio and television back to theater, Broadway, the Ziegfeld Follies, vaudeville, and it became, a, I don't want to say an obsession, but a very strong interest as I went through those documents and learned about Cantor and the world around him. So in your book, you talk a lot about um, Eddie Cantor in his context, as you mentioned, um, you were trying to do, and you do a great job of doing that. And you've just told us a little bit about who he is and kind of the broad arc of his life. But I want to go into a little bit more detail and um, have you tell listeners who he was and how he came to be a performer. So I was wondering if you might start by talking a little bit about how he got into show business and where he came from and the essentially his early 20th century context. 
Uh, the subtitle of the book, it's called The Eddie Cantor Story, A Jewish Life in Performance and Politics. And in many ways, Cantor lived in archetypal Jewish life, starting with his background. He was born in 1892, and he grew up poor on the Lower East Side of New York, the son of Russian immigrants. He also grew up as an orphan. His mother died when he was two. His father either died or left the family shortly thereafter. And he was raised by his maternal grandmother, Esther Kantrowitz, who later changed the family name to Cantor, which Cantor, Eddie Cantor, of course, kept through his life. And growing up in poverty, he also left school at the age of 12. He tells the story in one of his autobiographies that a teacher was pushing him to try harder and work harder, and he slugged the teacher, broke the teacher's jaw, and then dropped out of school after that. And Cantor had this image later in life, justifiably so, as somebody who was very charitable, uh, very patriotic. He was also involved in labor unions. And as a child growing up, he tells stories that really counter this image. He actually worked uh, protecting strike breakers, protecting scabs. He broke into stores. Uh, worked uh, was part of a gang of kids causing trouble on the streets, committing petty crimes. So he had a rough childhood, and he decided to use show business to get out of that life. And it made economic sense. Many of the performers, especially the working-class Jewish performers who later came to define American show business, went into the business not because they had this burning desire to express themselves creatively or they had this amazing talent. They did it for the money, and they did it because they didn't have a lot of other options, and they did it because show business paid about what the other industries or the other jobs that were available to them would have paid. They could make the same thing on stage as they could make working as a clerk in a store or in a stockroom, which is something that Eddie Cantor did, or sort of a low-level errand boy. And the sky was the limit. There was no telling how much money they could make in show business. Uh, so that's the reason that Cantor decided to try his luck in show business. He started off as an impersonator, impersonating more famous people on, in talent shows. There's the expression, get the hook, from old variety shows or old talent shows where they would literally hook somebody off the stage if he wasn't doing a good job or she wasn't doing a good job. The expression, get the hook, really originated in the types of amateur shows and variety shows that Cantor started off with uh, in the early 1900s. So he would make a few dollars for those, and he gradually worked his way through vaudeville. Of course, the vaudeville circuit was a circuit of theaters where there would be vaudeville shows, variety shows, comedy, uh, singing, dancing, animal acts, a little bit of everything. And each town in each city had a vaudeville theater. And Cantor slowly worked his way through vaudeville, first as a sort of sidekick to other acts where he would just sort of get on stage and do what he could. And then eventually, he had his own act. He was never a huge, huge name in vaudeville, so sometimes people talk about him as an old vaudevillian, and technically that's true, but he was not a vaudeville star, but he worked his way through vaudeville, got more recognition, even though he was never a headliner. And then he started to work in 1916 for Florence Ziegfeld. Ziegfeld was the biggest producer on Broadway, and his Ziegfeld Folly shows were known for glitz and glamour, and they were really the height of American entertainment. 
before television, before radio, before sound film, the biggest stars in America, arguably, in addition to figures like Charlie Chaplin from the silent film through the teens and 20s, were the Ziegfeld stars and the theatrical stars. So in 1916, Eddie Cantor starts working for Ziegfeld. By 1917, he's one of the main players in the Ziegfeld Follies, alongside W.C. Fields, Fanny Bryce, Will Rogers, Burt Williams, and a number of other huge names in entertainment. He tours the country with the Ziegfeld Follies, so he's a national star in addition to being big on Broadway. And through the 1920s, he's huge on Broadway. He and Al Jolson are arguably the two biggest stars in America at this time. He makes several silent films during the 1920s. He makes several popular musicals, starting with the film Whoopi during the 1930s. So in the early 1930s, he remains one of the biggest stars, and he switches over to radio, which is the emerging medium. He's on radio before Jack Benny, before George Burns and, Al, and Gracie Allen, before a lot of the other comedians, and he creates a comedy show that really sets the tone for radio. He's a huge star on radio through the late 1940s. In 1950, he becomes a television star with the Colgate Comedy Hour, the program that I mentioned. And he also has several hit records for this time. He also writes several popular books, including a series of uh, satirical books during the Great Depression that are very popular. And he develops a one-man show, one of the first people to do this, looking back on his career, that's also enormously popular during the 1950s. So it's only after he has health problems starting in 1952 that his career starts to wane through the 1950s. So he's big in every popular medium of his time for more than 40 years. So he has this great career. I actually, I love the detail. And I think you, um, that you just mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned it here as you talk about in the book, that he really gets into show business, not because he, you know, has a flair for performance, though he does. That's why he succeeds in it. But that he's getting into it because of anti-Semitism and limited opportunities. And that it really is, you know, a path that is open to him for the possibility of making money, even though it's not necessarily like a, a passion initially, so to speak. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, but I wanted to kind of dive into a few of these moments. You have lots of uh, details or whatnot. You, you discuss in more thorough detail each of these stages of his career in your book, of course. And we don't necessarily want to go through all of them today, but I wanted to pick out a few moments to talk about uh, in a little bit more depth to give listeners an idea of his more about his career and of your book. And I was wondering if perhaps you might talk a little bit about his um, engagement with the uh, Ziegfeld Follies, because those are something that people might have heard of, but also because I thought that that might be a moment that you could talk a little bit about his rising popularity, but also his personality. And one of the things that you, of course, talk about, um, which you want to talk about more later, is the extent to which he kind of reinvents himself over and over. And he has um, these moments where if his career is sort of maybe uh, flailing a little bit, that he has a ability to come back as something new. So I was wondering if you might talk about his time in the Ziegfeld Follies and his um, move there from vaudeville, but then also some of his conflicts with Ziegfeld himself. After working his way through vaudeville, Cantor gets his big opportunity in 1916 with the Ziegfeld Midnight Frolic. 
that's the show that Florence Ziegfeld produced. Af- people would go to it after the midnight, after the Ziegfeld Follies. It was they would have supper there. They would watch the show. Cantor gets this big opportunity to perform there, and it's essentially a trial, 1916. And he, th- some big shots are in the audience, including William Randolph Hearst. And Eddie Cantor decides to do a card trick. So he has them each hold up a card, and while they're holding up a card, rather than what the audience would have expected, Cantor trying to, you know, guess the card or guess the card that they're holding, Cantor starts singing this Hawaiian novelty song, and he keeps strumming it on a broken ukulele while these big shots in the audience are holding up their cards. And what he's doing is really making fun of them, and it was a nervy thing for him to do at the time. He's unknown, and he's making fun of the biggest performers there, and it works. He's a hit at the Ziegfeld Midnight Frolic, and from there he gets an opportunity to graduate to the Follies, which is really the biggest show. And... At this point, he sing. Uh, he has. He sings a couple songs. He dances a little bit, and he also tells jokes. And he's not hiding the fact that he's a New Yorker, and he's not hiding the fact that he's working class, and he's also not hiding the fact that he's Jewish, and he's also making this work for him. He's also performing in blackface, which we could talk about in more detail later in the evolution of his blackface, which is one of uh, the themes that I trace. In the book, but on the Zig- in the Ziegfeld Follies, he's presenting himself in a number of ways, but frequently as a wise guy. So, in one of his showcase songs from the Ziegfeld uh, Follies of 1917, he sings, "That's the kind of a baby for me about taking in blackface." as a New Yorker with his working-class accent talking about taking a divorcee around town and going to the clubs, and she's awfully wild, lots of sexual innuendo. And on top of that, he's singing it in blackface. So he's doing things to sort of play around with expectations and and to sort of play around with conventions and to sort of skirt the line as to what was acceptable at the time. And that's a big part of his routine. He's also frequently playing around with gender roles uh, and sort of testing the limits of Victorian morality and what he can get away with and a bit of a wise guy. And that's really his persona on the Ziegfeld, in the Ziegfeld Follies uh, for the three Follies that he's there, 1917, 1918, 1919. Eventually, he runs into conflict with Florence Ziegfeld who of course is a producer. Ziegfeld was a sort of father figure to him and a mentor and really gave him this huge break. But a couple things happened in 1919 that strained their relationship. Uh, The first is, and the main one, is that there is an actor's strike and Cantor at this point is active in actor's equity. He's active in the union and he helps lead the actors in the strike, which includes the strike against Ziegfeld. And for Cantor, it was a sense of loyalty to the other actors, even though in some cases uh, they were the ones, uh, the sort of lower level actors and the ones who weren't getting paid a lot were the ones who stood to make the most and benefit the most from uh, the strike and from what the actors were bargaining for. But that caused a huge rift between Cantor and Ziegfeld and eventually led to Cantor leaving Florence Ziegfeld and going to the Schuberts. But really, 
The bigger point throughout this, Cantor was very feisty. He stood up for principles, and in many cases, with producers, with networks, he was with advertisers. He was willing to fight, and he was willing to do what was right, and he was also willing to do, to use his leverage as a star and as a celebrity to try to get what he wanted, whether it was changes in a show, or whether in some cases it was something bigger, for example, the right to speak out against Nazism, the right to speak out on behalf of actors. So uh, after Ziegfeld, uh, Cantor works for the Schubert Company. And again, he has a series of hit shows. He continues to refine his image, but he also is very willing to clash with the Schuberts over uh, editorial control in a sense that he wants to control the show. So let's talk a little bit about the blackface um, that was a really big part of his career and his his shows. Um, and you kind of trace uh, the evolution there a little bit. And of course, you know, from someone thinking about this from the 21st century, uh, it may seem in a way that his use of blackface conflicts with a lot of his um, political ideology and his attempts to push back against um, discrimination. And so I was wondering if you might talk just a little bit about that use of blackface and um, that contradiction. Yeah, as um, as a writer, I think blackface, especially as I started the project, was one of the most difficult things for me to deal with and even to see. It's so obviously grotesque and racist those to our eyes today and but I felt like it was really important to go back and really understand what it meant to Cantor, what it meant to the audience, what it meant in the context of the times. And what I found is that different performers use blackface very differently. And also, and I think this is a comment on how racism itself can be invisible. It was not a central part of a lot of the reviews. Blackface was seen as a theatrical device or a theatrical convention by actors, by performers, and even by critics of the time. So that's that's a little bit of what I found, but I also found that the meaning of blackface changed very radically over time. Cantor began using blackface almost as soon as he started on the low-level vaudeville circuits around 1909. And he continued using it on and off through the early 1950s. Uh, It was not central to, for example, his films, his radio program, but it was always part of who he was and part of his performances, and it was part of what I wanted to write about. When Cantor first started using it in the 1950s, teens, blackface was very popular, and every major ethnic performer trying to break into show business used it. Al Jolson, of course, is the best-known blackface performer from that time, but George Burns, George Jessel, Will Rogers used it occasionally, Sophie Tucker used blackface frequently, and, uh, and Eddie Cantor wore it. And in many ways, it, it would symbolize... I'm a comedian, I'm going to tell jokes. It was a way to sort of signal to the audience the type of act that they were going to see. And performers also thought it looked funny, as did audiences. And remember, these are also racially segregated theaters, or in many cases, not only racially segregated, but in some theaters, blacks were not allowed at all. So this was 
a white audience and white performers putting on blackface for the white audience and mostly white critics. But it was enormously popular to the point where it was almost invisible. Starting in 1918, Cantor fought Ziegfeld to get out of using blackface so much, but not for political reasons, because he didn't want to be typecast as a blackface performer, and because he thought it limited what he could do artistically with the makeup. He felt like it limited his facial expressions, limited the types of roles that he would play. Uh, Al Jolson, perhaps the best-known blackface performer of the time, would sing songs about the Old South and Swanee and Mammy and sort of take on that persona. Cantor played the opposite way, and he did it for laughs. During this time, he would put on the blackface makeup, but he would talk as a Jewish performer, and he would sometimes even use a sort of fake upper-class accent to, to play against the stereotype and to get laughs. You think you're getting A, but you're really getting B. You think blackface, Jewish blackface, you think you're going to get somebody like Al Jolson singing about Mammy. You're not. Over time, Cantor even made fun of the Jewish performers who put on that sort of southern black persona. There's a wonderful song that he sang in the early 1920s that he wrote also called My Yiddish and Mammy. And Cantor did not write a lot of songs, but he got co-writing credit for this. And he's making fun of people like Jolson. The lyrics are, I have a Yiddish mammy, but she don't come from Alabama. Um, she's filled with love and sentiment. Her home is a Bronx tenement. And it's a way to sort of say, come on, Al Jolson, you know, stop putting on this Southern black thing, this Southern black face thing. But... Uh, but for Cantor, it became part of his career, and by the late 1920s, he's almost using it nostalgically, which is the way it continued. It was a way of giving the people what they wanted and sort of signaling, almost like a greatest hits type thing. Or the, I mean, the, it's analogous to a performer today doing an old hit song or something like that. And Cantor really saw it like that, as did the audience. And sometimes he would introduce the blackface segment by by referencing the nostalgia that it evoked. We're going to get nostalgic now. And that was a way of signaling that. So he performed in whiteface through that time, through the 1920s, through the 30s and 40s, but then he would frequently have one segment in blackface, and it was where he would sing older songs, it was where he would tell those types of older jokes, and he would put on that kind of performance. Uh, this continues really on to the Colgate Comedy Hour, which starts in 1950, and NBC and the advertisers are very supportive of both the blackface and the nostalgic elements of Cantor's act. By 1952, not only is the industry changed, but there's, you know, in the wake of the emerging civil rights movement after World War II, there's a lot more sensitivity to blackface, a lot more recognition of the racism and the stereotypes. And the networks are coming down on blackface performers, and I found some really important memos in the NBC files where they talk about this and talk about discouraging performers from using blackface. I didn't see anything particularly saying Eddie Cantor needs to stop, but after early 1952, he did not appear on black, in blackface on television anymore. And the last clip that I could find with him in blackface, he's doing a routine at the end of a Colgate Comedy Hour episode. He's in blackface, and they're clearly short of time, so he's stretching out. And one of the things that he's promoting is an upcoming uh, fundraiser for Israel Bonds that is also celebrating his 60th birthday. This is 1952. So he's in blackface talking about Israel Bonds. And I think at that point, it's so clear that 
you can't support one group by wearing makeup that denigrates another one. And after that, he no longer appeared in blackface. At the same time, as you indicated, Cantor was very active in fighting prejudice broadly, part of coalitions, parts of coalitions that were fighting prejudice. He was widely praised in the black press for years for hiring and uh, working with black performers during a time when many other uh, white artists did not. The Nicholas Brothers, for example, the dancers, uh, he toured with them in addition to performing in films with them. Um, in the early 1950s, uh, he also, um, for example, he invited Lena Horne on his program uh, for Brotherhood Week. So he was involved with a lot of those types of groups. And most famously, in uh, 1952, he invited Sammy Davis Jr. and his group, the Will Maston Trio, on his program. And Davis later told the story that uh, Cantor got in trouble for wiping... Sammy Davis's brow. Davis was sweating. Cantor comes on and he actually wipes his forehead. And you can see that in the clips from the program that I found. And according to Davis in his autobiography, he said that this sparked a tremendous amount of outrage and letters from viewers and that Cantor was threatened with being taken off the air if he ever had the Maston Trio back. And Cantor said, I don't care. I'm having them back anyway. The Maston Trio did appear. I don't know if there was that level of protest against Cantor at the time. I could not find that kind of record. But I think it it's symbolic of the way a lot of black performers and the black press that I saw saw Cantor as a, quote, friend of the race during this time, even as he was using blackface. So to us, the contradiction is glaring. But at the time, it was not. And I think... Um, I think what part of what's interesting is American pop culture is there are these tensions and there are these contradictions and we see everybody, white performers, black performers, audiences and critics, sort of navigating it and making sense of it, even in a way that might be different from us today. So does Cantor himself actually talk about his use of blackface in any of the sources that you found? He does. He talks about it frequently and... He even talks about it as being divorced from race. He will, uh, I found quotes where he said, well, referencing 19th century, in the 19th century it was about old-timey plantation life, but it isn't anymore. And he really did see it as part of bringing that image to a more modern America and getting rid of that particular stereotype. Um, but beyond that... Uh, it wasn't just Cantor, but the whole discourse around it, at least in the theatrical press, the white press that would have been reviewing the shows, would have had access to Cantor during the 1920s, for example, in Broadway, did not, much of the culture did not necessarily see it in racial terms. They saw it in performance terms. So for Cantor especially, for, it was more about a performance technique and how he felt about it. Um, so that, that to me, again, it's an interesting contradiction and tension, but what Cantor talked about it frequently, and he also talked about wanting to take it off and perform in, quote, whiteface, which was the term for more natural makeup. But he talked about it in terms of wanting to escape the um, typecast and having freedom to do more roles and to perform in his natural look and to do more 
for example, a Jewish aviator that he felt didn't work as well in blackface makeup. Uh, he wanted to do more roles and more different kinds of roles, and he didn't want to be imprisoned by that one image uh, because he was always changing, always looking to update his image, always looking for the new thing, and always, you know, he realized that he had to keep changing. But for him, it wasn't, this is the meaning. But nobody, he was never charged with that either, which is what's so interesting. The critics at the time didn't call for him to stop using it. Even the black press articles on Cantor that from the 20s, 1930s, they did not call him to task or criticize him for this. That's really interesting. Um, so you mentioned, I mean, one of the things that's unique, as you already said, about his use of blackface is that he's, uh, you know, uh, using his regular voice and regular accent. And a lot of what you're talking about in the book is his um, Jewishness or the ways in which he embraces or uses his um, Jewish background within his comedy. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that, and in particular about what is different about that for the time period. Cantor was enormously popular among Jewish audiences, and that's one of the things that even attracted me to him and the story. I vaguely remember my grandparents talking about him. I found an Eddie Cantor record in the, the collection of records that they had that were sort of passed down through the family. And I wanted to understand this popularity, especially among Jewish audiences and American Jews. And part of the reason is that Cantor figured out a way to speak to American Jews and to express American Jewish culture from the biggest stages that America had to offer. And he did it in a way that was different from many other performers. Excuse me, during the 19-teens and 1920s, uh, there were two predominant images of Jews before figures like Cantor. Either Jews would hide their Jewishness, change their names, take on non-Jewish roles, and basically acculturate and not say much about their Jewishness, not something they were interested in, and just go on to careers as actors where... Many people didn't know they were Jewish. The other extreme were these gross stereotypes with fake noses and big hats. And sometimes they would be like greenhorns with these heavy Yiddish accents saying and doing very silly things. And Cantor comes on the scene along with Fanny Bryce, actress and singer from the Ziegfeld Follies. And they present a different image of Jews. They're presenting Jews as, quote, Americans during a time when many people did not define Jews as Americans. And I think that one of Cantor's not only central contributions, but even central missions is to elide the distinction between Jews slash immigrants, Jewish immigrants, and even Jews more broadly, and Americans, saying that Jews are Americans, Jews belong as part of American culture, and... Um, Jews belong in America on a very basic level during a time when there was anti-Jewish, anti-immigrant sentiment, which took different forms in, for example, the 1920s, 1930s, 19-teens. Uh, so getting back to his performances, Cantor was very sly in the way he expressed Jewishness initially during the teens and the 1920s. He would draw on a repertoire of archetypes and Jewish types, and he would slip them in 
and sometimes maybe perpetuating stereotypes of sort of weakling or nebbish. You can see elements of Eddie Cantor and later figures, Bob Hope, who was not Jewish, but certainly took on the sort of coward nebbish role the Cantor pioneered and made popular. He didn't do it alone. He's drawing from Yiddish culture and Jewish culture, but he's certainly making it popular on stage, and it goes straight to Woody Allen uh, and a number of other archetypal characters, the wise guy, the fast-talking city guy, the fast-talking Jewish salesman. Uh, there's a scene from the early 1920s that was in a 1929 film where Eddie Cantor is a tailor, and he spices his act with Yiddish, and he's talking fast, and he's at a Lower East Side clothing shop. And later, Martin Scorsese called this, quote, the essence of Jewish comedy, this particular scene, the fast-talking Jewish salesman. And you could see echoes of that in figures like Mel Brooks. Don Rickles. Uh, so he develops a number of types. There are similarities to somebody like Sarah Silverman in that he seems like a wide-eyed innocent and then he suddenly becomes lewd or sexual or sort of zaps you. So he's he's working from a number of different traditions and it's part of who he is but he doesn't let it define him entirely. So he'll slip a Yiddish phrase in or he'll slip a reference to kosher food or Jewish holidays again like later comedians and then he sort of pulls back so he's not defining himself as exclusively Jewish but he's making his Jewish background his Jewish persona what he knows about Jewish culture part of his act and this was especially important to American Jews to have a figure who's not strictly stereotypes who's not only presenting these stereotypes but only speaking to them in a sort of coded language so american jews especially see that it's one of them and he's not hiding the fact that he's jewish while at the same time he's not allowing himself to become uh i guess put into a box or put into this fi uh, figure as somebody who's a quote only a jewish comedian He's portraying modern city types, and if you know the Jewish culture, you're recognizing it as Jewish, and you're getting special pleasure from that. And for Jewish audiences in particular, there, he was a tremendous source of pride, and I found tons of articles to that effect in the Jewish press about how Cantor's success was symbolic of the success of all American Jews and sort of making it on Broadway, making it in quote, mainstream America, and he did it in a way that had multiple meetings. He did it in a way that was Jewish, but not stereotypical or over-the-top Jewish to the point where he would alienate Jewish audiences or even alienate non-Jewish audiences that didn't get what he was doing. So that might be a good place to talk a little bit about his more overt uh, political activism. Um, so a, a lot of his performance is certainly making a claim, as you say, on Americanist Americanness for um, American Jews. But he also, especially as we get more towards World War II and into World War II, is overtly politically active in fighting and responding to anti-Semitism. And, and there's certainly other political stances that he takes, as you mentioned before, with labor activism, for example. But could you talk a little bit about um, his political activism and his status? Because he's certainly, he's not a, um, a political activist who's far away from the seats of power. He certainly knows some very important people and, and has some success in that sense. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
Cantor was one of the first stars to really leverage his celebrity, not just to sell sponsor products, not even to just sell his latest film or himself on Broadway, but to really try to sell political ideas. And this went beyond the kind of celebrity endorsement or endorsement of war bonds that that, uh, certain figures had done earlier. And he's deciding to make Jewish causes really one of his main political causes. He's also active in other charities, which we can talk about, but he's very focused on the plight of Jews. And this starts really in the early 1920s, where he's making comments and jokes and satirical, taking satirical shots at the KKK and at Henry Ford. And Ford, of course, not only was notoriously anti-Semitic during the 1920s, but is also enormously popular as an icon of American industry. He's almost like, I don't know, a a Mark Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates or somebody like that or a Steve Jobs back during the 1920s. So for a little Jewish comedian to be making jokes like that took courage. And he was the only one making those sorts of jokes at the time. So this is the 1920s, taking shots at Ford... um, one of the earliest sound films of Cantor and an early um, an early sound short uh, that I found is Cantor doing a routine and he makes a joke. Uh, Henry Ford would talk about Jewish businessmen and conspiracies about Jewish businessmen and Jewish business acumen and, and uh, Cantor tells a joke. Uh, I know Henry Ford. Well, I know why Henry Ford is angry at the Jews or something like that. But his punchline is they were getting more <laughs> for secondhand Fords than he was getting for new ones. So it's it's a way of sort of taking a shot at Ford and, so, and how ridiculous some of his claims and some of his stereotypes were. It becomes even more serious and even more central to Cantor's career in the 1930s with the rise of Nazism and with the rise not only the rise of anti-Semitism, but clearly the rising threat, the idea that what's going on in Nazi Germany could happen in America. So Cantor was very well connected with some of the organizations, including a man named Leon Lewis, who was very active in monitoring Nazism in Los Angeles, and with some of the groups that were monitoring and speaking out about Nazism in the United States during the 1930s, when it was politically risky for him to be doing so, when there was strong sentiment that America should not be involved in another war, when there was strong sentiment, uh, strong public opinion against uh, additional immigration for Jewish refugees, and when there was a good amount of anti-Semitism. And Cantor worked behind the scenes, working, uh, for example, with Lewis, working with different organizations, and he also worked very prominently as a star to raise money and to speak out against anti-Semitism. For example, he worked uh, with the group Hadassah, the Zionist Organization of America. Hadassah was raising funds for an organization called Youth Aliyah, which was promoting the emigration of refugees from Nazi Germany. Cantor did an enormous amount of work. Again, he's one of America's biggest stars at this point. He would travel from town to town at his own expense, speaking to small groups of people to raise money for Hadassah. He would take advantage of the fact that Hadassah was able to get 
time on the radio for public service announcements, which could be a little bit more political because they were not sponsored. And he would speak not only about the need to help uh, young people in Europe and to raise funds for that, but he would his message would diverge a little bit from Hadassah's. Hadassah was interested in building up Jewish Palestine and creating social services in Jewish Palestine and, and fostering immigration to Jewish Palestine. For Cantor, he was really concerned about anti-Semitism, and he would talk about the way anti-Semites and anti-Semitism has infiltrated the highest levels of government, the media, uh, politicians, industrialists, business in America. And these were fighting words during the 1930s. And he would not only spe uh, speak on the radio about this to raise funds, he would also use the Jewish press. And the only actor at his level who would do this, he would use the Jewish press in interviews and he would publish his speeches in articles in the Jewish press talking about the threat of anti-Semitism. This provoked a vicious backlash. He received many death threats. And this was during a time, unlike today, where celebrities aren't surrounded by bodyguards, where you don't have to pass through metal detectors to get into radio studios or television studios or arenas. There was not the level of security and insulation and a sort of entourage around celebrities than there was now. And Cantor was very accessible to the many Nazis in America who may have wanted to do harm to him. And in fact, there were plots to kill not only Cantor, but others that, of course, didn't come to fruition. But it was dangerous at this time. Um, and Cantor would speak out. And a lot of times, even though he was speaking to Jewish groups, his articles would cross over into the mainstream newspapers, like the New York Times, like the Washington Post. Uh, most notably, for example, in 1938, Cantor had just returned from England, where he had raised a lot of money for Hadassah and for Youth Aliyah. And he came back and he spoke about Henry Ford. Henry Ford in 1938 had just accepted a medal from Germany. It was um, the highest medal that Germany awarded to a foreigner. And Cantor accused uh, Henry Ford, again, the popular industrialist, of, of basically being a tool of Hitler and Hitler's propaga uh, propaganda machine. And he said, quote, I question Mr. Ford's Americanism and his Christianity. I don't think he's a real American or a good Christian. The more men like Henry Ford we have, the more we must organize and fight. These are fighting words from a Jewish comedian to try to criticize the Americanism of Ford, but it also illustrates the way... Cantor saw what's really at stake here is who are the good Americans, how do we define America, and if Jews are not part of that, if Jews are defined as bad Americans, it could lead to even further problems, potentially even the kinds of problems that Jews were experiencing in Germany during the 1930s, and the, uh, the kind of um, horrors that might await them. So for Cantor, speaking out like this provoked a vicious backlash. Uh, and I, in my research, I found these amazing letters that Cantor saved for many years that were part of uh, a collection uh, that a California collector shared with me. A man named Milt Larson collected a ton of Cantor's materials from his personal secretary. 
So I saw the stack of letters, vicious anti-Semitic letters after the Ford comments. And in a lot of cases, they questioned uh, Cantor's Americanism, not only conflating Jews with communism, but also saying you were in Europe raising funds for European Jews while Henry Ford is putting Americans to work during the Great Depression. How dare you? You're going to spark a backlash. You're going to spark violence against Jews. Uh, but that didn't stop Eddie Cantor. He continued to speak out like this. And in 1939, he spoke at the recently opened World's Fair, and he spoke to Hadassah at a, uh, at a meeting there. And he criticized figures like Father Charles Coughlin, who was by this time a notorious anti-Semitic radio, uh, radio priest who had a program and a huge following. He also criticized a U.S. senator, Senator Robert Rice Reynolds, from North Carolina, but he said that there are industrialists behind them and that Nazis have essentially, this, this is my paraphrase, but that Nazis have infiltrated, again, American government, the media, uh, and that this is a real danger. After he made that speech, he lost his radio program. His sponsor, R.J. Reynolds, also from North Carolina, although the Reynolds family from the sponsorship from the cigarette company, was not related to the senator, uh, but in criticizing the senator from North Carolina, that may have been the last straw. So Cantor lost his radio program in 1939 after this speech, and nobody else would sponsor him after that. So he was essentially blacklisted from radio for a year, from 1939 to 1940, because of his political activism. And he said that that particular speech cost him more than half a million dollars, which is the amount of money that he would have made on the radio that year, and his career was in serious jeopardy. But uh, again, I think it speaks to his courage and uh, his awareness of what was going on in the world and his need to speak out when many others did not or could not. So he, I mean, all of that is really fascinating. And he is doing a lot of really courageous things. Of course, then the US does get involved in World War Two. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about whether he has some kind of rehabilitation isn't quite the right word, but um, ability to see his popularity come back as the mood of the nation changes uh, once we're actually involved in the war. It becomes really interesting. By 1939, he's off the air, and he decides to try to, I think he used the right term, rehabilitate his image, and he realizes that his career could be over at this point if he doesn't do something. So he decides to go to church. <laughs> he decides to become involved in coalitions of Christians and Jews fighting prejudice more broadly, and Nazism and anti-Semitism is part of what they're fighting, as well as other types of prejudice, anti-Catholicism, racism, and he becomes involved with these organizations, and he literally, uh, in, he will tour the country giving performances with his radio troupe, which they're all off the air also, so they're doing stage performances to keep themselves working and make money. They'll go different cities a week at a time, and at each, excuse me, at each city he finds a way to appear at a church or another organization that's doing... Uh, sort of work across different denominations. And he talks about the power of prayer broadly. He also starts speaking about uh, against communism as well as Nazism and, quote, isms as a whole as threats to America and the American way of life. So he's starting to also maybe see the threat of conservatives and the right wing. He's also seeing the rise of 
uh, committees that are investigating Holly, the Hollywood left. And he's smart enough to sort of tack over that way. He praises J. Edgar Hoover in a speech, and the FBI notices this. And I found correspondence in the FBI files on Cantor where they talk about uh, Cantor praising Hoover for uh, keeping the country safe from communism. And this is all registering. He also uh, works with the American Legion during this time, conservative organizations. So he's really making clear his patriotism, but also the importance of prayer in American life, the importance of religion, not strictly Judaism, but religion more broadly, in instilling values and in, in fighting prejudice. And that combined with what you suggested in your question, a change in the national mood uh, as World War II starts in Europe uh, after the Nazi-Soviet pact. Uh, so things are starting to change in the world. And by 1940, after a year off the air, uh, Cantor gets the radio program. His friend Jack Benny also helps by uh, contacting an advertiser and an advertising agency on his behalf. So Cantor returns to the air in 1940. But he's still careful about how he expresses his anti-Nazism. He'll make a couple comments, but he's very cautious about it. Of course, after December 1941, with, when the U.S. enters World War II, Cantor becomes more outspoken, and he's one of the first comedians to start doing anti-Hitler jokes. He does this parody newscast, parody of a German newscast that makes fun of the Germans, makes fun of Hitler, and even causes some concern at NBC about whether or not this is the right tone, whether or not radio comedians should be ridiculing Hitler, whether or not it's, uh, it minimizes the threat of the enemy. So people are still sort of nervous about it, but Cantor continues. And he does a number of uh, very creative... Uh, routines and sketches, some more serious than others, on the radio through the 1940s that are anti-Hitler. And he continues also to talk about the value of prayer. Uh, one of his songs is Just a Prayer Away, which became a hit for a number of performers, uh, which again extols the value of prayer. So he's softening his image a little bit, and he does still raise funds for Jewish causes, and he does still occasionally speak about... Uh, the plight of Jewish refugees and Jewish children and raise money for Hadassah. But he also tacks over during the war to do a tremendous amount for the Red Cross, to do a tremendous number of visits to hospitals, and to work with a broad coalition, including the American Legion, uh, with whom he creates a Christmas gift campaign, Give a Gift to the Yank Who Gave, where people go to stores and again, he's always good at merchandising. They'll go to Macy's, for example, buy a gift, and it will go to a soldier. So he's constantly working sort of multiple angles and constantly recrafting his image according to what's going on in the country. And uh, he also uses his radio program, of course, to talk about the plight of soldiers during World War II and the need to support troops. He does a 24-hour uh, marathon for bonds uh, to, for bond sales where he's on the air for 24 hours which was unprecedented 24 hours straight so he's doing a lot to retool his image while still recognizing the importance of Jewish causes during the war
This is all very fascinating. And once again, it's really interesting the extent to which he's sort of um, on the pulse, if not perhaps a little bit ahead of the curve of a larger context, moving towards more interfaith um, conversations. And, uh, you know, not not too long after World War II moves into the Judeo-Christian um, ideas circulating in American politics and life and things like that. So this is really interesting the extent to which he's uh, – making that turn in his um, tack to try and rehabilitate himself in relatively successfully. But I don't want to take too much of your time. And I feel I would be, be remiss if I did not ask you really just what is your favorite Eddie Cantor show or um, moment or joke or, or whatnot, just some aspect of the performance that he does that stands out to you as particularly, whether, you know, funny or entertaining or interesting and illustrative of, of something about him? That is a terrific question. I think one of my favorite pieces is the 1929 film that I mentioned briefly where he does the comedy routine. He's in blackface. It's called the Ziegfeld Midnight Frolic, even though it was filmed on a soundstage. But because Cantor was always interested in sort of the next thing and different technologies, there are lots of rare sort of experimental films and pieces that he did that we're lucky to have because in the pre-sound era and the pre-film era, of course, in the pre-videotape era, it's really, really hard to research and reconstruct what performances might have been like. But the 1929 is Ziegfeld Midnight Frolic. It's about a 12-minute film. It's available on YouTube. And it's just really rich for me as a historian. I mentioned the Henry Ford joke. He sings a few songs. But it's also really interesting to me to see him in blackface and how the blackface almost disappears because you become less aware of it as you look at the other elements. And I could understand after really, you know, seeing it as, as I mentioned, grotesque and racist. It still is. I don't mean to diminish that, but you could understand how critics were not focused on it because there's so much more to his performance. And it's funny, it's creative, you get a sense of his charisma, you get a sense of the different types of things that he did, and I think that's my favorite, just the fact that it exists and it becomes a record of his stage show. There's also a film from 1929 called Glorifying the American Girl where he does the entire Taylor routine that Martin, I alluded to earlier that Martin Scorsese called The Essence of Jewish Comedy. And I think it's really those early films that give glimpses of what he was like on Broadway because to me, I think maybe because much of that is lost, I love seeing those fragments and trying to imagine what it would have been like in conjunction with the archival material, the newspaper articles, the scrapbooks, everything that I found to try to imagine what that audience would have seen during the 1920s. I mean, there are some good radio shows. I like some of the clips from the Colgate Comedy Hour, including one is a one-man variety show that's also really good, where he goes through his whole career. It's a variation of a stage show that he did. But I think my favorite is really that 1929 clip where you get a sense of really what he would have been like on stage through the 20s and what audiences would have seen in him. That's great. Okay, well, can you tell us what you're working on now? You already mentioned that you work at the NEH, but are you working on a new project? Or do you have any new projects that are uh, 
a glimmer in your head? At this point, I am mainly working on uh, talking to about Eddie Cantor. <laughs> I have a number of speaking engagements lined up, uh, mostly in the D.C. area, but also in New York. And mainly just uh, thinking about Cantor and a couple ideas about where it might take me. But at this point, uh, both thinking about Cantor, talking about him, and seeing uh, what other people have to say and uh, the questions that they ask, which I really appreciate. <laughs> Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. I really enjoyed the book. He's a fascinating um, character, and you bring him to life and bring to life a lot of his performances. So thank you so much. Thank you, Christine. This was terrific. Thank you. <laughs>